Long before the parties in the pictures, before Ike took over the master bedroom in Marty's house, before I was their neighbor, Marty Markowitz began to see Dr. Isaac Hirschkoff at his Manhattan office. I began to see him, I think, twice a week initially. Starting in 1981, Marty would see Ike on Mondays and Wednesdays at 1.45 p.m. Usually, they would sit and talk, but sometimes Ike would suggest they take their therapy sessions outside. Very often, we would go out and take a walk. In one of those early sessions, Marty told Ike all about a problem he was having, a problem with an ex-girlfriend. She and Marty had dated briefly, dinners out, then a weekend getaway. My parents had an apartment in Florida, and I said, come on, let's go down to Florida. When they got back to New York, they started talking about marriage. But Marty had some conditions. And uh, I said, happy to go forward, but uh, I want a prenuptial agreement. And she said, absolutely not. Things fell apart quickly. All of this was very overwhelming, and it was all happening right after my father died. Marty called off the engagement. And then... When we're all broken up two, three months later, she comes to me and says, you know, you promised me a vacation in Mexico. Marty says he had promised her a vacation. But now he felt trapped. Ike listened to Marty's story, and then he said... You see that? You're an easy mark. She has so little respect for you that after the relationship is over, she comes back to you with with a statement that you owe me. Ike told Marty that this was a problem he would help him deal with. He said, you see that? How people constantly try to take advantage of you. People want your money. He used that incident for years, again and again and again. You see what happened with And Ike said, under no circumstances are you to give her one penny. Marty says he followed Ike's advice. He didn't give his ex a vacation. Finally, he felt like he was in control. He'd always had a hard time standing up for himself ever since he'd been a kid. I would say this. I did not like confrontations. I wasn't good at them then. I didn't like them. And uh, he weaned me of all of that. I mean, he, uh, you know, my time with him, I did become a much stronger person. I told him straight up that he would have his back any time someone tried to push him around. Nobody's going to take advantage of you. Not your uncle, not your sister, not any of your so-called acquaintances. Nobody is going to take advantage of you. Everybody's afraid of me. I'm going to be like your big brother. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. But it would be a while before Marty understood what that actually meant. Imagine a world where you can get shiny, healthy-looking hair color without spending hours in the salon. That is what you'll get when you color your hair with Madison Reed. Madison Reed makes coloring your hair at home super easy. That's because they give you all the tools you need to succeed, starting with the color quiz, their try-on tool, and color specialists ready to take your call or chat with you so you can make sure you're getting exactly what you need. Unlike many other hair color brands, Madison Reed Color doesn't contain harsh ingredients like ammonia, PPD, or titanium dioxide. Instead, it's full of ingredients that nourish your hair, like keratin and ginseng root extract, so you get shiny, healthy-looking color. So, if you're ready to look like you went to the salon at a fraction of the price, starting at just $22, head right now to madison-reed.com. Use our promo code THESHRINK, and you'll get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. That's promo code THESHRINK. All one word. This episode is supported by Home Chef. 
Home Chef simplifies meal planning with delicious meals delivered weekly to your door. The box arrives complete with recipe cards and perfectly portioned ingredients. You'll have a home-cooked meal in about 30 minutes. When you're short on time, quick oven-ready or microwave recipes offer easy prep with little mess. For $90 off your first month of orders, use promo code WONDERY at homechef.com. Home Chef. Delicious. Meat simple. From Wondery and Bloomberg, I'm Joe Nocera, and this is The Shrink Next Door. This is episode two, Sibling Rivalry. Marty Markowitz liked his new therapist. Dr. Isaac Hirschkoff was younger, better looking, and cooler than he'd expected a therapist to be. I just knew I admired him. In my world, he was larger than life. Ike says he never told Marty, I'm going to take care of you. In fact, he wrote that Marty's characterization of him makes him sound like a gangster. But Marty was impressed with how his new therapist had solved the problem with his ex-girlfriend. So Marty began to share more of his problems with Ike. A lot of them started with the death of his parents. There was the outstanding issue of how to divide up their estate. And then there was the family business, Associated Fabrics Corporation. The company sold fabric to big theater and dance productions. Marty had taken over the business after his father died. He'd only been CEO for a year, and he was struggling. He had no one he felt he could turn to for advice. No one except Ike. I had told him we were in the process of moving from 39th Street down to 25th Street, and he said, I want to come and take a look and see your operation. This request was, to say the least, unusual for a therapist. But Marty didn't give it a second thought. I thought this is fine. He wants to give me some advice. He seems to be giving me good advice. I'm all for that. And so, one afternoon after therapy, doctor and patient left Ike's office on 37th Street and walked the 12 blocks to Marty's new office on East 25th Street. The new space was on the second floor of a warehouse. It was filled with heavy industrial shelves. Everywhere you looked were bolts of fabric and spools of trim. The employees' desks were all in the open warehouse floor, but Marty had a crew building him a private office. He showed Ike the half-built room. He came down and immediately made some suggestions about which way the doors would open. He would say to me, you know, the doors to your office have to open in because the boss's doors never open out. Did you know that, Joe? Actually, that was news to me. <laughs> what? what? This is- he said from a psychiatric, from a psychological perspective, the doors to an office have to open in. You have to be the one to invite somebody in. Whether or not this psychiatric perspective has any basis in science, it certainly irritated one of the other longtime employees, Bruce Nocera. No relation to me, by the way. I remember there was, oh, should open this way, open that. I remember the whole big discussion. It's a friggin' door. What are you making an issue out of it for? You're wasting more time than it's worth. Bruce was head of sales. And he watched all this with growing impatience. Want the door to open that way? Open that way. Just don't hit me with it. I don't care what you do. The company was a family affair. Marty had brought on his younger sister, Phyllis, to work with him, managing the warehouse inventory, answering calls, along with anything else Marty needed. When my brother took over the business, 
he asked me to come to work for him. And he said that if you're going to work any place, you really belong in the business. It's part yours. This was our inheritance. And so I went to work for my brother. Phyllis has Marty's same dark hair, brown eyes, and warm smile. But she's livelier than he is. She was happy to work for the family company, and especially happy that she was working for her only sibling. Brother and sister had always been close. And while, yeah, they were having some disagreements over who'd get what from their father's estate, Phyllis figured they would eventually work it out. From her desk, right outside Marty's office, Phyllis could occasionally catch snippets of her brother's conversations. And some of those conversations sounded a little strange. I would just hear my brother saying, I have to get back to you. And then he would put the customer on hold or say, I'll call you back. And I was aware that he was calling Dr. Hirschkoff to get advice on how to speak to that person. And when Marty did call them back... There was an attitude now. It became almost defensive. It was a different attitude in the way he began to speak to the customers. Phyllis knew her brother was now seeing his psychiatrist three times a week. She thought it was odd that Marty would call his therapist for a business question. Still, if her brother was getting some help, she was all for it. Phyllis had her own life to deal with. She was a single mom with three young kids. She and her children had moved back to Manhattan from upstate New York after a difficult divorce. And so, when Marty suggested that she make an appointment to see Dr. Hirschkoff, Phyllis said, why not? Marty even offered to pay for the first session. I never thought that I would actually go to the same therapist that my brother was seeing. But I was certainly willing to meet him. And in fact, I was curious to meet him. (laughs) In all honesty, I wanted to meet him. I had to see who this person was that was kind of directing this life and hear what he had to say. Next thing she knew, Phyllis was sitting in that same leather chair in Ike's office. He's pleasant looking. He spoke in a pleasant, I don't want to say hypnotic kind of a way, but he has a he has a kind tone to his voice, and he started out by being very empathetic. Phyllis decided she didn't want to see the same psychiatrist as her brother. Ike confirms that Phyllis only came to that one consultation. He says the decision not to continue was mutual. The fact that he was seeing my brother and treating my brother and giving my brother advice... How could he help me deal with any issues that could come up with my brother? It's just impossible. He can't be on my side when he's talking to me, on my brother's side when he's talking to my brother, because if there's a conflict, then there's no resolution. You're just adding to the conflict. I said, thank you very much. I agree I'm going to need help, and it's not going to be you. Shortly after that, things very much began to change with my brother. And... uh, I I, I feel like crying. I mean, it was um, a very pivotal decision on my part that I'm not sorry I made, but it absolutely changed. Things between Marty and Phyllis were already tense. They still hadn't settled their father's estate, which included the Florida apartment, some New York property, and valuables like gold coins and jewelry. But now... Marty had less and less patience for her at the office. She would come in late. She would leave early. She would tell me she had to take care of the kids doing this, doing that. And the whole thing started to grate on me. There was this gal, I forgot her name. But she was a nice gal, personable, bright. Phyllis would be BSing with her during the course of the day. 
And Marty would look up and see her BSing with this receptionist, not doing the work that needs to be done. And he'd go nuts. You still have work to do. You shouldn't be in there talking about uh, the color of your nylons. You, you, you should be taking care of business, take care of the work that needs to be done. You know, and, but she's Phyllis would do stuff like that. She just, the Phyllis it was, her dad was still there. It was a family business, which it was. In the past, Marty had been willing to let this kind of thing go. But now? I'm cutting your salary by $5,000. You're earning too much money. No explanation. He actually cut his sister's salary. And not just once. He did it several times. Marty was getting tough. He told me to cut her salary. I told her I wasn't happy, that she wasn't spending enough energy uh, at her job, giving it full attention. And I cut her salary by $5,000. And do you think you would have done that if Ike hadn't told you? That's my producer, Krista Ripple. I don't think so. I don't think I would have done that. That's not the way I would have handled the problem. But, Marty says, Ike was persuasive. I felt it was a directive, um, even though he might have at the time said, yeah, do what you want, but don't come back to me and if, it, if, uh, if you don't do it. That was always his mantra. I'm going to give you advice. I expect you to implement it. And if you don't, don't come back to me and complain that things are not working out. But things were not working out between Marty and Phyllis. Their relationship was at an all-time low. And it was about to get much worse. Orphan Black is back. Realm presents Orphan Black, the next chapter, the official podcast continuation of the hit TV series. Starring Emmy Award-winning Orphan Black star Tatiana Maslany, ComicBook.com calls this a truly thrilling sequel that captures the mystery, humanity, and heart of the original series. It's been eight years since Project Lita was destroyed for good, but all is not well. When a dangerous genetic technology is stolen and an unknown clone appears, Cosima and the other clones are forced to struggle for survival. Fans are raving about this series, and it's currently the number one fiction show on Apple Podcasts. New episodes drop every week. Learn more at realm.fm and be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Marty and Phyllis lived a few blocks from each other on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Every morning, Marty would get in a taxi and go four blocks south to Phyllis's apartment. She'd hop in, and the two would ride downtown to the company warehouse, ready to start work at 8.30 a.m. Now, as Marty cracked down on Phyllis in the office, he also became furious if she was even a minute late to their morning carpool. If I was late to the taxi cab, he would start to yell at me. I had kept the taxi waiting for two minutes and that was unacceptable. And I finally said, do me a favor, go go to work without me. I will get myself down there when I can. I couldn't leave my kids. And Marty made a new rule. In the office, Phyllis could only speak to him about their work. Nothing about their family, nothing personal, no other conversation. If he heard me on the phone, he would come over to my desk. And in those days, the printouts from the computers were those 18-inch, big, heavy, massive things. He would come over to my desk, slam one down on my desk and say, if you have time to talk on the phone, you have time to do an inventory. I had a sense that they had a falling out. Because you could see there was tension. But I didn't know the source of the tension. Bruce could tell something had gone sour between Marty and Phyllis. 
but he had no idea why. I didn't think it was business. I thought it was personal. But I didn't know how personal or what personal. It became more and more difficult to have conversations with him because he was very judgmental. I thought it'd be over in a little while. I thought they'd have a, you know, duke it out, you know, discuss it. But it was it was uglier than, than I ever imagined it would be, could be. The tension began to build up in the office in such a way that I was beginning to feel that working there was untenable. While all this was happening, Marty was planning a party. With his 40th birthday approaching, he decided to have another bar mitzvah. Now, Marty had had one bar mitzvah when he was 13. But Marty says Ike suggested he do it again as a kind of recommitment to Judaism. And Marty was taking the whole thing very seriously practicing reading the Torah in Hebrew for the ceremony. Despite the tension between them, Marty still asked Phyllis for help. He said, well, can you help me go over the Torah reading? I said, I, at this point, I said, I really don't know it. I'm, you know, the assistant rabbi or the cantor, you know, someone will help you learn it. Next, Marty wanted her help writing invitations. I had studied Hebrew calligraphy so that I had done my daughter's invitations and had done it. It took me months to do it. A lot of work. So Phyllis, with three young kids and a full-time job, declined. The next time she heard about the party was in the office. And he came to me one day and he said to me, well, did you like the invitation? I said, mine must have gotten lost in the mail because I never got one. And it was at this moment Phyllis realized her brother was pushing her out of his life. And he said, well, I couldn't invite you. He said, nobody that I now know knows that I have a sister, a nephew, and nieces. And if I suddenly turned up with them, they would really think I was crazy. So I can't invite you and I can't have you there. You know, you ask me to write the invitation, you ask me to, to teach you, you ask me to do everything, and then you don't invite me? Like, are you crazy? They're right to think you're crazy. Phyllis stormed out of the office and never came back. If I had been not so angry or hurt, I might have seen that this was not typical behavior of my brother, that something else was influencing him, that someone else was creating this barrier. Marty's bar mitzvah ceremony took place at the Lincoln Square Synagogue. He read from the Torah, which won him praise from his rabbi. Ike was at the ceremony and the reception in the shul afterwards. He even brought his wife, Becky. Phyllis wasn't invited. Phyllis and her brother had stopped speaking. It was a strange change for the family. Phyllis had always relied on him. It was Marty she turned to when she got divorced. And Marty had always been such a big part of her kids' lives. He was like the fun uncle. You know, he always visited. This is Lainey Lipsky, Phyllis's youngest daughter. He was the uncle who was like, had all of the cool gadgets. He always sort of shared stuff that I was kind of like, I don't think you're supposed to be saying that to me, Uncle Marty. Like, you know, or showed us the movie, like, you know, we weren't supposed to see, or, you know, he was that guy and, and, and playful. Phyllis's children had no idea that their mother and uncle weren't speaking. Phyllis was still trying to get her brother to talk. But no matter how many times she called him, Marty wouldn't return her calls. Weeks dragged on. Finally, Phyllis had had enough. She wasn't about to give up on her relationship with her only brother, not without a fight. I just knew that 
in order to get my brother to talk to me, in order to get him to speak to me, to discuss what was going on, brother to sister, is I had to take something that at that point felt like it was meaningful to him. And she knew exactly what that was. And so I took the jewelry. The jewelry. Marty says when his mother was alive, his dad bought her enough diamonds to earn her the nickname Diamond Lil. There were gold bracelets, a beautiful diamond engagement ring, earrings, and a pin with little diamonds. Phyllis knew where they were, and she knew that if anything was going to get Marty's attention, it was that jewelry. She didn't care about its value. She wanted to force Marty to talk with her again, and maybe to hurt him just a little. And the way to do both of those things? Bank robbery. To create the best Tucson ever, Hyundai questioned everything. The design, the technology, the features. How could Hyundai rethink the SUV? In the end, every inch of the new Tucson was completely reimagined, resulting in an SUV loaded with available innovations both inside and out. Like daytime running lights stylishly integrated into the grille, a large 10 and a quarter inch touchscreen, and even a digital key app that allows you to use your phone to unlock and start the vehicle. Design, technology, safety, all redesigned inside and out to create the best Tucson ever. Learn more at Hyundai.com. Most of the jewelry and gold Marty and Phyllis's mother left them was in a safe deposit box at a small bank in Manhattan. At the time, it was near uh, 39th Street, where my father's office was. The safe deposit box had two keys. Marty had one and Phyllis had the other. Phyllis walked into the bank and asked to be taken to the vault. She pulled the safe deposit box out of the wall and unlocked it. It contained two things, Marty's stamp collection and a small cardboard box filled with jewelry. She grabbed the jewelry. I think I happened to have a prayer book with me that I stuck in so that the, <laughs> so that the box itself would have weight. And then she left. I didn't even look at it until I was home. But she wasn't done. Not even close. With the jewelry in her New York apartment, Phyllis boarded a plane to Zurich. Their father had left the siblings a joint Swiss bank account. It had $1.5 million in it, close to $4 million in today's money. And I said I would like to move the money from this joint account to one in my name. I signed whatever paperwork I needed to open up a separate account. We transferred the money. And I left. I think it was all done in less than two hours. Last stop, Marty's apartment. Phyllis knew he was out of town for Memorial Day. She walked into Marty's apartment building, past the doorman, and took the elevator to the 15th floor. In her hand, she held a spare key. Once inside, she headed straight to the hall closet, where she knew there was a stack of bonds sitting on a shelf. These bonds were another part of their inheritance. So I knew where they were. There was no big secret. Phyllis picked up the bonds and slipped them in her purse. And I left a note that said, Marty, I have possession of these. Please call. We need to talk. And I left. When he got back from the weekend, Marty saw the bonds were missing, and he read the note. Well, I, uh, you can imagine how you would feel if someone came into your apartment, took 
valuable property and you come come back and discover this and you're not about to call the police because you know it's your own sibling who did it. So the police were out of the question, certainly at that point. I was in a state of extreme agitation. It was late at night, but Marty needed advice. He needed to talk to Ike. Ike was in Philadelphia visiting his in-laws, but he'd given Marty the phone number. This was way before cell phones. At two in the morning, Marty finally got his therapist on the phone. I remember calling Ike uh, and uh, unloading all of that on him, and he said to me, relax, we'll take care of it. We have an appointment on Monday, and we'll talk about it then. At their next session, Ike calmed Marty down. He said, we have to find out the extent of this thing. Marty went to the bank, to the safe deposit box. He saw the jewelry was gone. He checked the Swiss bank account. That was cleaned out, too. This was Marty's worst nightmare. Ike denies what Marty says happened next, but Marty says he remembers it vividly. He says Ike had warned him that people were out to take advantage of him for his money. And here, not only was someone taking advantage of him, but it was his own sister. He was saying to me, very simply, look at this, all she wants is your money, period. She wants your money, and we're gonna put a stop to that right now. You're gonna break off your relationship with her. And we're going to do it in the following way. We're going to write a letter to Phyllis and write a letter to her daughter. I was called to the principal's office. Lainey clearly remembers June 2nd, 1983. It was her 13th birthday. She was at her Jewish middle school. And so, of course, I thought I was in trouble because <laughs> I was called downstairs. You don't get called to the rabbi's office for no reason. And I arrived downstairs and... Um, the rabbi uh, handed me a letter, and it had my name on the envelope. The letter had been hand-delivered by a messenger service. Laney opened the envelope. Inside was a two-page letter, handwritten in cursive script. She recognized her uncle's stationery. I read it. I don't remember reading it in the office, but I do remember thinking, I need to call my mom. Laney walked out into the empty hallway. There was a payphone. I said, I got a letter from Marty. She said, oh. And I said, I said, I need to read it to you. The letter began. Writing this letter hurts me more than anything I've ever done. Unfortunately, I have no choice. Your mother has chosen to betray me. She has deliberately lied to me and stolen from me. As much as I once loved her, and as much as I still love you, she has left me no choice but to totally terminate my relationship with her and thus, of necessity, with the three of you. The phrase that stuck out to me and, like, you know, I can see in my head is, and therefore, you are no longer benefactors of my estate. And I knew that was important. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew it was important. I realize that, in effect, you are paying for your mother's crime, and I am sincerely sorry for that. But I hope you realize I had no choice. Like, I didn't understand the words, but maybe I did understand the words, because it was one of those moments, you know, when you, like, something big happens and you kind of shut down. Lainey read the last sentence to her mother. Despite the fact that we will never speak again, and no matter what your reaction be to these tragic events, you will always have my best wishes and my love. Your uncle, Marty. 
My mom on the other end, like there was a, a long pause and she just said to me, do you want to come home? And I said, no, like that, uh, no, I'm, I'm fine. And, and I put the letter away. I mean, I guess I was in a state of shock when I look back at how I reacted to it. Like I knew what the words meant, but like I couldn't process how it made me feel. I love you, I love you, I love you, and I'm disowning you, and I love you. That's the message. And it's your mother's fault. If Lainey was shocked, Phyllis was furious. I think I wanted to chop his head off. I, I, I really, it said, my sister betrayed me. I wanted to say, no, the betrayal was the other way. Like, you, you've got this situation backwards, Marty. And anyway, why are you taking it out on my children? What the F is going on here? Like, you want to be mad at me, you be mad at me. You don't do this to my children. Like, I, I'm not sure I was going to ever be ready to forgive him. In the letter Ike wrote to me in 2012, he said that what Marty wrote to his sister was poignant, painful, and deeply personal. And he added that he had obviously played no part in this document. Of all the things Marty says he did at his psychiatrist's suggestion, this was the first one he knew, truly knew in his heart of hearts, was wrong. But he wouldn't allow that thought to linger. He couldn't. I felt I had no choice. And the one person I could turn to for advice was Ike. And this was his, his advice was to sever, break off the relationship. And I just stopped. I wouldn't allow myself the luxury of thinking about what was morally right, what was morally wrong. I just accepted my psychiatrist's word that this was the way to deal with the situation. Marty says that Ike suggested he start bringing photographs of him and Phyllis to his therapy appointments. There were a lot of photos. Black and white ones going all the way back to their childhood. In one picture, Marty and Phyllis are about seven years old, and they're in ice skates. The two kids are standing next to each other, wearing nearly identical smiles. Marty showed the photo to Ike. Then, Marty says, Ike handed him a pair of scissors. The idea was to cut my sister out of my life and to cut her totally out of my life. We literally cut her picture away and sent it to her. I opened up the envelope and there were these pictures. Well, they weren't pictures. They were half pictures. There was a picture of me standing up against some kind of a wall when I was about three. There was a picture of me at about eight years old on ice skates and the other person in the picture and the other half of the picture wasn't there. It was clear that he had taken a scissor and cut, cut, I won't say he cut himself out, he cut me out. He didn't cut himself out. He cut me out. But here, Marty says, he didn't quite follow his psychiatrist's advice. I was supposed to throw them out. I kept them, secretly kept them. Marty's world was shrinking. His sister and her children were out of his life. And in session after session, Marty says, Ike hammered home some harsh truths. He also told me I wasn't lovable. You're not a lovable person. That's why nobody loves you. Your sister doesn't love you, your nephews. Nobody loves you. Ike says he never spoke those words. But what we do know for sure is that Marty became more and more isolated, leaving behind fraternity brothers, old colleagues, 
people he'd known from his synagogue, until he only had one friend left, Ike Hirschkoff. From Bloomberg and Wondery, this is part two of six of The Shrink Next Door, a story about power, control, and turning to the wrong person for help. If you'd like to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts and every major listening app, as well as Wondery.com. Visit Bloomberg.com slash shrinknextdoor for more on this story, including images and extended content. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. You'll also find some offers from our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you help us bring you our shows for free. And thank you. The Shrink Next Door was written and reported by me, Joe Nocera. Senior producer is Krista Ripple. Bloomberg's head of podcast is Francesca Levy. Fact-checking by Molly Nugent. Sound design by Jeff Schmidt. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marsha Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.